this episode of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wine with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. Today we're talking about head and neck cancers with a focus on those specific cancers related to human papillomavirus, HPV. And just a little bit of background on HPV. Um, it's a very common virus. There are many different types of HPV. Some are sexually transmitted, and this includes some high-risk types that are usually harmless, but in a few cases, if the immune system doesn't clear the virus naturally, which normally does, it can persist and actually increase the risk for some types of cancer. When we talk about cancers associated with HPV, we're usually discussing cervical and some other gynecologic cancers, but HPV, is linked with a number of cancers, including anal, penile, and of course, some head and neck cancers. We're gonna cover all those today, including what you need to know about prevention, the role of vaccines, and how to talk with your healthcare provider. Our guest is Dr. Michael Moore. He is a professor and a physician with the Indiana University School of Medicine. He's also the president of the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance, and that's how we at Asher were fortunate enough to come to know him through some shared HPV vaccine work. So Dr. Moore, welcome, and thanks for taking time to chat with us today. Thank you, Fred. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so, uh, well, you know, it's really, this is important that we get into this. And uh, as I mentioned in the, in the intro there, we normally talk about HPV cancers in the context of gynecologic cancers, but there's a whole nother world out there. So let's, let me get into some of the basic anatomy. So head and neck cancer is, I understand it really refers to multiple types of cancer that can be found in different areas of the head and neck. So specifically, where do these cancers occur and which ones are closely linked with HPV? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, I think for the purposes of today's discussion, I would think of head and neck cancers as tumors that arise from the lining of the mouth and the, of the uh, lining of the mouth the nose and the throat. Um, you can also get head and neck cancers that come from the skin or the salivary glands or even the thyroid gland. But I think those are often have different risk factor profiles and, and uh, are presenting in a way that's much different than uh, the ones that come from the mucosa or the lining of the mouth or the throat. The uh, HPV-related ones, so typically tobacco and alcohol have historically been thought of as the main risk factors for head and neck cancer. And a lot of that's because of the, the cancer-causing agents or carcinogens that come with them. And so when they were used together, they had almost a synergistic effect or they, their risk profile was multiplied when used together. But in recent years, uh, certain types of HPV viruses have been linked to uh, um, cancers in the back of the throat or what's called the oropharynx. And the area that's most commonly affected within the oropharynx are the tonsils, so what are called the palatine tonsils that sit on the side of the back of the throat, and then the lingual tonsil tissue that lines the back of the tongue. And a lot of it is related to the anatomy of this part of the throat. They have little pits or crypts uh, that the virus can actually go down within uh, and, and serves almost as a reservoir for it. And the lining of the depths of those crypts, so imagine kind of like a canyon, and at the bottom of that canyon is where the HPV virus can develop a persistent infection. And I think that's important because that impacts the ability to, one, uh, you know, this is where these cancers develop, and two, that makes it so they're oftentimes not easily visible. So unlike cervical cancer, where, you know, a pap smear looks at a smooth-lined 
uh, cervix, um, the, the back of the throat, it, there's, these tumors are oftentimes developing in areas that you can't see even when you're looking directly at them because they're kind of down underneath the surface. And so I think that's why it's really important for people to be aware of these. Yeah, and uh, a little bit later, uh, I'll ask you about screening as some of the uh, uh, things people might do in terms of prevention, but you mentioned risk factors specifically um, head and neck related to alcohol and tobacco use. Um, my understanding with the oral pharyngeal cancers is that HPV is not only significantly associated with these cancers, it actually now is thought to cause the majority of them. Is that, is that true? It does cause the majority of uh, oral pharyngeal cancers. Actually, uh, eight, between 70 and 80% of these cancers have been linked to high-risk HPV. And these can happen in people who lack a lot of the classic risk factors of tobacco and alcohol use. Now, many other parts of the mouth and throat still have um, strong links to these other risk factors. But as far as the oropharynx in particular, the tonsil and the base of tongue, the vast majority of those are, are related to high-risk HPV. Has HPV been associated with any other types of head and neck cancer, or is it really just focusing on the oropharynx? It has been linked uh, in other areas of the mouth and throat. Um, you know, there are certain ones within the oral cavity and, uh, you know, the back of the nose or the nasopharynx or even the voice box or the larynx. Those are much less frequent, and oftentimes um, the behavior clinically is much different than the, the way the ones in the back of the throat or the oropharynx uh, behave. Um, the HPV-related uh, oropharynx cancers are, are really um, almost a, a different disease entity from those that are related to tobacco and alcohol use. They, they tend to be much more responsive to treatment in particular, whether it's you know, treated with surgery or radiation or, and or chemotherapy, uh, than the ones that are related to uh, uh, tobacco and alcohol use. All right, so we just talked about risk factors. Let me ask you a bit about some prevention. Um, uh, and where I'm going here, of course, is the vaccine. We have a great HPV vaccine that's approved to prevent a number of HPV-related cancers, including head and neck. And routine vaccination is recommended for everyone through age 26, the younger, the better. So you get more robust protection in place as early as possible. Um, so it's a great thing, but uh, how, what do we know about how well it really works in preventing these HPV-related head and neck cancers? I think it's a great question. Um, so we do have data on showing that the uh, available vaccines in particular, uh, um, the one that's utilized in the United States now is Gardasil uh, 9, um, protects against nine different uh, types of uh, HPV strains. In particular, HPV 16 is the one that most frequently is linked with um, uh, cancers of the back of the throat, meaning the oropharynx. It's been shown to be quite effective, uh, over 90% effective at preventing um, in, uh, oral infections with these high-risk HPVs. Because there's a, a very long latent period from when these infections happen and when cancers develop, which can be anywhere between a 20 to 30 year lag, we do not yet have great data to show prevention of oropharynx cancer happens as a result of the HPV vaccination efforts. Um, unlike cervical cancer, uh, we don't have a pre-malignant precursor, so high-grade dysplasia, for example, within um, cervical uh, screening exams has been shown to be reduced by HPV vaccination. We don't have a pre-malignant um, analog in uh, oropharyngeal cancer, possibly because of where they develop um, in an area that's not easily visualized. 
And so as a result, we don't have a lot of the uh, more longitudinal data showing prevention of, of HPV related throat cancer, but we all think it's highly likely that that will be the case. You know, it's preventing the infection that ultimately puts these patients at risk for getting these cancers. Uh, it's been shown to be safe. And I think it's very likely that over time, it will bear out that this is gonna reduce the incidence of these cancers in those who are vaccinated. So I'm thinking there's got to be an element of frustration for health professionals like you. I mean, we've got this vaccine that's approved to prevent these cancers, and uh, we have pretty good reason to believe that it works. But we're really lagging in getting needles to the arms of the people who need it the most, especially with uh, males. I mean, is there any advice on increasing vaccination uptake? I think it's uh, you're bringing up a very important point, uh, and I think a lot of it then goes back to education, and it's education of the general public and patients uh, about the importance of this and the fact that these are very preventable cancers, and, and um, a lot of people aren't aware of the spectrum of cancers that are caused by it. I think it's fairly well recognized by the general public that these high-risk HPVs can and put people at risk for abnormal pap smears and development of cervical cancer. But uh, oropharyngeal cancer in, in America can uh, occur in up to 20,000 people a year, which is almost one and a half times uh, the incidence of cervical cancer. So it's by far the most common HPV-related malignancy in America. And as you pointed out, this, these happen in the vast majority of people are men. Uh, so about four to one ratio of male to female. Uh, and because of that, and because of the, the historic link of um, people understanding the link between HPV and, and cervical cancer, there's much more of a push on the uh, front end of these vaccination efforts in, in girls and young women. Uh, and as a result, there's been a significant lag in uh, the vaccine uptake with boys and, and young men. Uh, I think um, some of that is, um, you know, based on the general public's resistance and not understanding it, but it's also the providers, so the pediatricians, um, and their, um, uh, you know, lack of appreciation of the significant impact of these cancers have on people and the people who actually are risk of cancer are at risk for cancer that maybe they otherwise didn't appreciate. So I think it's a combination of educating the, the public and, and educating the providers as well. And there's been a lot of um, study on how to issue this message to people and, and, you know, using it so that you're almost packaging this with the expectant vaccines that are uh, being introduced in the adolescent years. So the Tdap and meningococcal vaccine, for example, um, using it as a presumptive recommendation saying yes on you know this visit they're going to need x y and z and using um, uh, uh, the HPV vaccine as one of those that's that's recommended and then you know dispelling a lot of the common myths so there's there are myths that by advocating for this vaccine if a child gets it that they'll somehow become more sexually active at an early age and it's actually been shown to not be the case and so I think a lot of it is just going into that discussion prepared uh, to talk to the patient and talk to their family uh, and then and to make sure they're aware that this is a very important cancer causing uh, prevention. Very important uh, cancer prevention means that we can offer to them that's safe, it's effective, and it can really uh, save the, their life down the road. You touched on some statistics there, and I was looking at some CDC data just ahead of our, our conversation, and you mentioned that there are roughly 20,000 cancers of the oral pharynx each year, and about three-fourths of them uh, are, are thought to be HPV-related, which puts them pretty much on par with 
I think what we see with the, with the incidence of cervical cancer. So this is not a rare thing. You know, it's really, it's important to talk about. Um, just, and you also talked about the fact that, uh, you know, those assigned male gender at birth are more, far more likely, four or five times maybe more likely to be diagnosed with these oropharyngeal cancers. Any idea why that connection works that way or do we not really know? Yeah, I think there's still a lot that's not known. Uh, I think that there's some thought that it may be related to differences in sexual practices. Um, there's been some data to show that there is, uh, you know, increased concentration of these uh, viral particles and, and um, for example, vaginal fluids compared to, you know, their risk of transmission um, for oral sex uh, on men. Um, the, uh, you know, it could be, uh, other, um, aspects such as, you know, prior exposure and other parts of the body and some sort of, um, inherent autoimmunity, uh, to it. But, uh, in reality, I think there's still a fair amount we don't know, uh, that may make, uh, the male host for whatever reason, uh, more likely to, to be susceptible to development of these types of cancers. You know, the question of transmission is probably the most common one that we receive. People are always asking about oral sex. Sometimes we get questions around deep kissing. Is that known to be a risk for HPV transmission or acquisition? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's, uh, there's not strong data to support that, but there are a few studies that have shown some correlation between deep mouth kissing uh, and uh, um, the increased risk of HPV-related uh, infections. And so I think the thought is, is certainly possible. You know, these have obviously been even diagnosed in people who did not have a history of oral sex, for example. And so um, yeah, I think you have to consider it as, as a possibility. It's not thought to be likely to be transmitted just through, you know, general sharing of utensils or um, cups or things like that. There's not obviously great data to really look at that one way or the other, uh, but in reality, it's not thought to be a common common risk factor in that regard. Uh, primarily, it's through sexual activity, uh, but there, it's possible there could be some um, uh, less intimate contact that could predispose people to getting it. Let me ask you about uh, signs and symptoms. What are the symptoms of uh, oral pharyngeal cancer? Do they mimic like things people might experience with other conditions? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's actually interesting. So HPV-related oropharynx cancer presents differently than similar tumors that are non-HPV-related. And for whatever reason, it's just indicative of the way that the cancers behave. So uh, ones um, that are HPV-related, the most common sign or symptom is actually a lump in the neck. So these are actually often referred to as shaving cancer. Some men will find a lump when they're shaving. Uh, and it's actually a representative of a lymph node that has cancer that has spread to it. Um, but other um, common symptoms are a feeling like you've got a lump in the back of your throat or a sore throat on one side that uh, continues to get worse uh, rather than better. Uh, anything that lasts more than two weeks, we usually would recommend have somebody um, be assessed for. Obviously, later in the disease, you could have issues with coughing up blood or difficulty swallowing or even change in your voice or difficulty breathing. Uh, ear pain uh, is a common symptom that, that can oftentimes be representative of the tumor uh, having in the back of the throat causing some referred pain to the ear. And that can happen even in somebody whose ears otherwise feel normal. So they may have normal hearing and, and it's just actually this referred pain from the throat that actually goes up to the ear. Um, the ones that are HPV related are much more uh, painful where the tumor itself starts. So those individuals usually start more with the throat pain and the difficulty swallowing. 
that will precede things like the lump in the neck in those individuals? My understanding is there's no specific screening protocol or test for head and neck cancers, including those of the oral fairy. I was thinking about this because you mentioned that it, a lot of guys find it when they're shaving, that kind of thing. But is that correct? There's really just no screening protocol like we have the PAP test and HPV test with cervical cancer? Yeah, that's correct. At, at present, there's no um, tool that's been shown to be effective on a large population-based scale. Um, there are some things that have been shown to help narrow the population, but none of which, because the incidence is so low globally and because we don't have a pre-malignant precursor to, to hone in on, they've not been shown to be beneficial on a population level. So for example, there's some data to show that you can check blood tests to look for um, antibodies to certain proteins that are produced by uh, individuals who may be at risk for developing these cancers. So when the uh, high-risk HPV virus sets up a persistent infection, they make certain proteins that can then put them at risk for developing these cancers. Antibodies to those may be something that would precede um, the development of cancers, but it, it, the um, incidence of that is so low that it's not been shown to be effective on a large scale. Physical exam is helpful, but in reality, people who are manifesting signs and symptoms on physical exam oftentimes have more advanced disease. And as I mentioned, a lot of times these are small tumors that are hidden underneath the surface. And so they may not even be visible, even when you're looking at it, looking right at them. Some people are starting to look at the use of ultrasound that would look not only for lymph nodes that are enlarged as, as we were talking about, but also you can actually look at the base of the tongue tonsil tissue, you know, lingual tonsil tissue, as well as the palatine tonsil tissue on the sides, uh, using ultrasound um, to look for small tumors that may be hidden underneath the surface. And then there's some preliminary study, but um, looking at what's called cell-free uh, um, cell tumor DNA, which is actually DNA from cells that is released into circulation into your blood uh, and when tissue dies. And so for cancerous tissue, they're frequently growing and dying quickly. And so turning over more quickly and releasing things like DNA into circulation. And so there is a blood test that has been used now to look for that DNA. It's been shown to be quite effective in the surveillance of patients who have known cancer. So if you have come in with an HPV-related throat cancer, you can get this blood test and it almost uh, always would be elevated. And then when you treat the cancer, uh, as long as the cancer is cured, it will go down to zero. But it's not been shown to be effective on a population scale as far as helping to screen. It may be that down the road, when more sensitive assays are defined sure. and we can more, more um, uh, closely narrow the group of people who are being assessed, it may have more of an application in that regard. But at present time, there is no uh, routine screening method for it. So given the lack of a current routine screening test, is this, are these cancers things people should just be talking about routinely with their healthcare providers? Any, any guidance or talking points there that they may want to bring up? Yeah, I think it's just, the biggest thing that we advocate for people is um, not ignoring common uh, signs and symptoms, ones that we just talked about, yeah. um, even if you don't have the classic risk factor. So the very frequent thing is somebody has, you know, a lump in their neck or a sore throat or something like that that's not getting better. And then they say, well, geez, I don't smoke or drink. I'm not at risk for this. And, and sometimes even their primary doctor may think the same thing. And so these um, symptoms may be disregarded as nothing significant because a lot of times these are common symptoms that people get, whether it's, you know, post-nasal drip and allergies or just a, a sore throat that's going around. 
I always say, just listen to your body. If something is not getting better for a couple of weeks, it's certainly worth bringing it up to your provider. Uh, I want to ask you about treatment. Um, and I know that's a broad question. It really depends on the patient, uh, I guess, and the staging and all that. But what are the basic treatment options you would offer somebody with oropharyngeal cancer? Yeah, great question. Um, I think there are two different treatment paths. And as you mentioned, a lot of it depends on whether it's more early disease versus later disease. Um, but the two big uh, options are either uh, uh, upfront surgical therapy, which involves a surgery to remove the cancerous tumor from the back of the throat, um, and then also uh, removing the either involved or at-risk lymph nodes within the neck. Uh, and then depending on um, if it's earlier or later disease, sometimes these individuals may uh, require additional therapy, such as radiation therapy with or without chemotherapy after their surgery. And so um, those uh, individuals, uh, and there are new techniques that have been adopted to remove the throat portion of the tumor where they use either a laser or using uh, small robotic instruments that actually go in through the mouth to allow you to carefully remove the whole tumor in a way that's less invasive than what we used to have to do. Um, but then uh, ultimately, when those individuals go through it and heal, they can oftentimes have quite good long-term speech and swallowing um, outcomes. The other option is what's called definitive non-surgical therapy, and this involves radiation therapy, what's called external beam radiation. Um, and for early disease, it would be just radiation therapy. Um, whereas for more advanced disease, like if you have lymph nodes involved or, or large primary tumor, it would be chemo radiation therapy where they combine uh, a medicine that you would instill intravenously uh, either once a week or once every three weeks along with the radiation therapy. And that um, can also be quite effective uh, at, at curing these tumors um, but a lot of it depends on, as you mentioned earlier, the, the subtleties of the patient and the subtleties of the tumor itself, as far as which one of them would be the best, best route to take. And we would always recommend talking to a team uh, that involves members of these different disciplines. So a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, and a medical oncologist, as well as a speech and swallowing therapist to really feel, figure out which route would be best for you. And you touched earlier on uh, the response to treatment for those with an HPV-related tumor versus from other factors. Could you just maybe a, another point or two about that? I find that fascinating. So it's like the HPV tumors, those are really a distinct disease. That's correct. Yeah, it's these uh, have been shown to be much more responsive to therapy. And, and some of the early data, when they one of the earlier studies when this, these were compared um, even these are groups of even advanced tumors. Um, uh, when they looked at those that were related to HPV or, or what are called P16 positive, which is kind of a surrogate mark marker for HPV uh, related tumors versus those that were P16 negative or ones that are more related to tobacco and alcohol use. The ones that were uh, HPV related had a three year uh, disease control rate of over 80%, around 82%. And that comp is compared to uh, just under 60% for those that are non-HPV related or those that are um, uh, typically related to tobacco or alcohol use. And so if you think about that, that's almost a 50% improved survival, um, you know, if you're looking at uh, for those who may be uh, cured three years out from their treatment. 
And I think the, th the thought is the ones that are related to tobacco and alcohol use, um, the, the tumors themselves have just sustained so many more mutations or so many, the, the actual tissue is so much uh, more abnormal uh, than those that are related to HPV infections. And so as a result, they may be in a better position to kind of mutate and change in a way that would make them resistant to radiation, ultimately surviving and, and coming back after treatment. When I did, when I was doing the intro talking about um, the give some HPV background, uh, I mentioned that the immune system usually clears these infections. Um, is that true? Do we know with oral HPV infections, are they usually transient in nature or are they more likely to persist or do we really have data around that? No, they are usually clear. Yeah, over 90% of uh, oral HPV infections would be cleared. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, you know, when you think about uh, all infections, that's the case. But, you know, when you have high risk HPV infections, those are, you know, similarly cleared in the vast majority of cases. It's, you know, under 1% of people would have a persistent infection and even a small fraction of those are the ones that would ultimately go on to develop cancer. But the challenge is we just don't have a good way of predicting that. And so that's why uh, you know, working to try and prevent it in everybody is so critical. That's a great point. Yeah. Last question. So I want to ask you about stigma. This is where we spend a lot of our time working. Um, when we talk with someone who has a diagnosis of most any type related to HPV or an associated disease, we'll usually spend almost as much time talking about the psychological, the social impact as we do their medical questions or their questions about the virus. I mean, how do you talk about HPV with your patients? What sorts of things do, do they need reassurance about? Well, I tell them it's the most common, you know, sexually transmitted infection that there is in America. Uh, the vast majority of adults in America have been exposed to it at some point in their life, close, you know, uh, oftentimes quoted as over 80%. And so they would be really in the minority had they not been infected. Uh, I also reiterate, because a lot of times this comes up in the context of a current monogamous relationship, is that this infection was oftentimes something that was contracted many, many years ago, maybe 20, sure. 30, 40 years ago. And so it's not a sign of recent infidelity or anything like that. It's something that they were just uh, um, uh, infected with a long time ago. Uh, and as a result, uh, it just happened to develop into uh, cancer in them currently. And so um, I think as a result of that, uh, you know, the, they're, how do we try and destigmatize it? Well, I think it's awareness. I think it's, uh, you know, there are a number of great survivor champions out there who have really um, put themselves out there as uh, making sure people are aware that this is a big problem. And they, I really have a ton of respect for them because they, they have just been able to um, uh, confront their disease, confront what they uh, dealt with, but then also um, try and spread the word so that other people don't have to uh, suffer the same uh, treatment uh, that they that they did. Uh, and so their, their advocacy work that, that they promote and their, um, you know, uh, relaying of their story to both patients as well as providers of the importance of, of 
uh, HPV vaccination and, and disease prevention are really a critical way that we can try and make a big difference on this. I'm glad you mentioned the survivors. They have the most authentic voice, I think, uh, of all. And we actually did a podcast a month or so ago with uh, a patient, a survivor, who really gave us a lot of insights about what it's like to go through the diagnosis and cope with that and go through treatment. So uh, thank you for mentioning that. And I'll just mention to anybody listening to this episode, if you have yet to do it, check out the one um, that we did with the uh, with offering the patient perspectives. Uh, so I think you'll find that enlightening. Dr. Michael Moore, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. You know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. This is an important topic. It's one we think deserves more focus. And I have to admit, I have a real learning curve here. You can't see my desk, of course, but I've got like four sheets with highlighters and notes in the margins as I was trying to really get up to speed on this. So you really, uh, thank you for focusing on those questions. I, I imagine this like with anything else, there's going to be, a, we'll, we'll need to pay attention to this because things are going to change probably quickly. And uh, you mentioned some diagnostics that who knows what we'll have in the future that we may use um, uh, more at the front end of, of, uh, of clinical encounters. So maybe we can chat down the road um, if you don't mind. Thank you. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thank you, Fred. Really appreciate you allowing me to be a part of this. I think it's such an important cause. So uh, always reach out anytime. Happy to talk with you. That is great. So thanks. Thanks to you. And thanks to everybody who listened to this episode. We really appreciate you. Check back off and see what we're rolling out. Follow us on social media at InfoAsha and at Stop HPV Cancer. And we will see you soon.